0: This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by LifeSport Coaching. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson, LifeSport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider LifeSport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at LifeSportCoaching.com hello and welcome to the july 29th 2022 edition of the Tri-Doc podcast i'm your host jeff sankoff the TriDoc, an emergency physician triathlon coach and multiple ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful sunny denver colorado I want to thank everyone who reached out to comment on the last episode in which I played the role of guest on my own podcast in order to give you all a little bit of insight into my journey through this sport from newbie to middle of the pack athlete to age group winner. I was initially a little resistant to the idea of being the subject of attention on my own program, but given what I've heard from several regular listeners, I'm not really happy that I did it and I'm hopeful that even for those of you who didn't reach out that you two agreed that it was a worthwhile exercise. I wanted to address a couple of things that were asked and clear up a couple of things that I said in the interview before moving into this new episode. First of all, I want to clarify something that I said to Joe and then kind of left unfinished. He had asked me about when I started making progress in the sport and finding success, and I answered at length about training consistency and quality and volume of training. But at the end of that answer, I said something along the lines of, there was still something keeping me from reaching the top step, but I didn't really elaborate on what that was. Now, I don't know if anyone actually picked that up and was left in suspense, or if it kind of slipped by, but whatever the case, allow me to dispel any mystery that I may have inadvertently created. What I was referring to in that instance was basically just mental preparedness. I talked about how I had dealt with imposter syndrome when I first qualified for Kona back in 2018, and well, that same kind of issue was at play in preventing me from realizing my full potential and getting to the top step of any podium. Although I was training really hard and racing really well, I honestly just didn't believe that I could win and wasn't prepared to push myself hard enough to do the kinds of things that were necessary to win because I I just didn't think it was possible. It was kind of a circular argument leading to a self-fulfilling prophecy. Nothing like dueling cliches, right? At any rate, what made the difference for me was getting my head straight, and I did that by hiring a mental performance coach just this year. I've spoken on this program to a couple of such people, but I've been working with Trevor Hale, who works out of Vancouver, British Columbia, and he came highly recommended to me by my mentor at LifeSport Coaching, Lance Watson, and I dare say that it was the best thing that I've done since, well, since getting a coach for my training. Something else that I want to maybe not so much clarify, but maybe just highlight comes about thanks to my wife, Sandra. She listened to the episode, and she felt that I didn't really emphasize just how important a turning point in my triathlon career my hip surgery was. She's absolutely correct, and this is completely unsurprising. When I met with the orthopedic surgeon back in 2011, and I should say here right now that I know I got the timeline a little confused when I was telling the story during the episode, but it was 2011 when I learned that I would need the surgery— He told me at that time that I was probably done and would need a hip replacement, and the idea that I was going to be out of triathlon really, really rocked my world. Well, instead, the labor reconstruction and microfracture procedure proved a complete success, and against all odds, I was able to come back, and really, that was the impetus for me to become much more serious about my training and racing. I figured that if I only had a finite time left to be doing this, I wanted that time to be maximized and didn't want to be just dallying about anymore. When I was back to full on racing in 2013, that was when I really started to see improvements, and by 2014 started to routinely be in the top 10 of my age group, but it was truly the surgery that caused the shift in focus and attitude that led to all of those results. Sometimes we just need this kind of life-altering event to put things in focus, and for me, that was the surgery. Finally, longtime listener and Patreon supporter Steph Van Beber wrote to comment on my mentioning my anger issues around not getting the kinds of results that I thought I could, even when I really had no business thinking that, because I'm Just couldn't put in the kind of training necessary to do as well as I wanted or really thought I should be. And she asked if I was unhappy at that time because I was angry, because I was disappointed in myself, or if it was because I just thought I should be doing better but wasn't. In retrospect, it wasn't that I was disappointed in myself. That wasn't really the issue at all. I really did think I was capable of more, but I simply wasn't able to put the training in to get there. And while at the time I was just upset at my placing and how far, I wa- how far away I was from where I wanted to be, with the benefit of hindsight, I can see that what the real issue was and what was really making me angry was that I just didn't have the time or I couldn't have the time to put into training to be the person I thought I could be. I hope that makes sense. And Steph also wondered if now that I'm winning, would not winning bring back that kind of old rage? Well, I certainly hope not, though I suppose time will tell. I mean, I'm not going to win every race I do. My guess is that instead of anger, it's going to bring circumspection and even more hunger. Why did I get beat this time? And what do I need to do to make sure that it doesn't happen again next time? That kind of thing. I'm pretty sure that's how it's going to go. But like I said, I'll let you know the next time I don't win my age group. Well, thanks again to everyone who took the time to comment. I'm really glad that you enjoyed the segment, and as I mentioned at the time, I'll have another similarly formatted segment in an upcoming show on how I balance my very busy work and personal life with my training and racing, so stay tuned. On the show today, though, I had planned to do a deep dive and analysis of a product that has been on the market for a couple of years now that promises to give athletes insights on their body temperature while training and racing. The Core Body Temperature Monitor is a wearable device that syncs up to all of the usual bike computers and wrist wearable devices that cyclists, runners and triathletes employ in order to provide real-time feedback on body temperature. The website for the Core makes the claim that knowing this information can help athletes improve their performance and training in training and racing, though i got to say it's never really been clear to me exactly how or why this would be the case. Well, we spent a fair amount of time digging through the site as well as of all as well as all of the science on this matter. And I got to tell you, we're still confused. I was just going to put together a segment on the device, but then I actually received a communication from the folks at CORE and decided to see if they wanted to chat. Well, it turns out they do, but unfortunately the person I need to talk to is away on vacation right now. And so for today's podcast, I'm instead just going to review what science there is on the matter, and on a follow-up show, we will tell you what I learned in speaking with the people at CORE, and at that time, let you know if I really think this is something that makes sense or not. Later, I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I recently had with the amazing Karen Smyers. Karen is yet another of the many athletes who I got to watch when I first came into this sport a couple of decades ago, and like several who have been on the show before her, she is an Ironman world champion and also had success at other distances. She went on to have an incredibly distinguished career racing as a pro until she was like 50 before health issues got in the way, and that's something what we'll talk about in the interview, but she still remains very involved in the sport as a coach and race organizer and truthfully remains a towering figure for women in triathlon. I had a terrific conversation with her, and I can't wait for you to hear it, and that's coming up in just a little while. Before all of that, though, I want to take a moment once again to remind you of the opportunities that exist for you if you become a Patreon supporter of this podcast. For about the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can sign up to support this podcast and in doing so, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out every month. Right now, there are interviews with the likes of Joe Friel, Sky Munch, Laura Siddle, Dave Scott, Mark Allen, and so many others, all available on a private feed just for my supporters. And now, while supplies last, subscribers at the $10 a month level also get a really cool and pretty awesome Boko TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today and become a supporter so that you too can get access to this and potentially the cool thank you gift. The URL for more information and where you can sign up is patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. The URL again is patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. Over the past couple of decades since I've been in triathlon, one of the most radical changes that I have witnessed has been the increase in wearable technology and all of the data that this has brought to an athlete and their coach's fingertips. Beyond power meters that are located on the bike, we now have pretty routine access to heart rate monitors, pulse oximetry for hemoglobin saturation measurements, blood glucose monitors, and even running power meters. The problem with all of this is that more data isn't just necessarily better. As I've talked about on this podcast in the past, just because you can measure something doesn't mean that you should measure it. In order for a metric to be useful, it has to be reliable. That is to say, the monitor has to be able to produce a number that is accurate and precise. And more importantly, that number has to be actionable. For example, knowing your heart rate, well, that's a good thing too low, and that means you likely can exert more effort. Too high, and you're probably going too hard, and you need to back off. But not all data points are this useful. As I discussed at length on the episode on glucose monitoring, the fact that you can get such a number is super interesting, but given that unless you're a diabetic and there really isn't a whole lot you can do about it, well, is it really all that helpful to know it? And in fact, After the initial interest and excitement over continuous glucose monitoring, I've been seeing a lot of people who use that technology express this very sentiment of light. Sure, it's kind of cool, but I don't really know what to do with it, and so I'm really not using it much anymore. Well, this brings me to the latest of those new wearables, and that is the Core Body Temperature Monitor. Now, I've known about the core for a while now. I first heard about it before the Grand Cycling Tours last year when a bunch of the teams were said to be using them to monitor their riders' core temperatures during racing. What wasn't clear to me at that time, and remains a little unclear to me even now, is what exactly an athlete is supposed to do with the information that this wearable provides – but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Let's first talk about what the Core is, how it works, and why its makers think that we should all have one. To put it simply, the Core is a skin thermometer with a Bluetooth antenna honestly, that's pretty much it. There's a bunch of tech speak on the website that goes into a little bit more detail about how it works and, you know, different functions. But at the end of the day, it's one and only important use is to measure body temperature and transmit that information to any number of devices capable of displaying it. This can be your phone, your Garmin, your Coros, whatever. Okay, so why should we care about this? Well, I've spoken in the past about thermoregulation and how important that is to our body being able to perform in endurance events. Essentially, when we exercise, we burn fuels to produce energy that is used to make our muscles contract. Unfortunately, a lot of the energy that is produced in these reactions is lost as heat, and our bodies, if not properly cooled, would tend to overheat pretty rapidly. Well, the concept of homeostasis is something that I have also talked about a lot. Essentially, it's the idea that our physiology is always working to ensure a constant internal milieu. There are endless aspects to that milieu. Electrolyte concentrations, levels of acidity, glucose concentrations, and of course, temperature. Several systems work in concert to ensure that we have a pretty narrow range of working temperature at all times, no matter what else is going on inside or outside of our bodies. Now, Those cooling systems, the ones that keep the temperature low, can become overwhelmed, and when they do, the body will overheat. Above a certain temperature, our muscles no longer function optimally, and we begin to see decreases in performance. So, conceivably, this is one of the ways in which the core could be of value. By monitoring our body temperature, we can become alerted to when we are overheating and therefore take steps to cool before that happens. Now, there are a couple of problems with this. First, There happens to be a growing body of evidence to support the idea that, in fact, we actually do pretty well at higher body temperatures. A study of marathon runners in Africa found that some of the fastest runners also had the highest body temperatures, indicating that higher body temperatures didn't really have such a negative impact after all. And similar findings have been found for Grand Tour cyclists and one-day classics and triathletes as well. Another problem with this concept is expecting athletes to respond to the information that their core temperature has risen to a certain level. For example, if an athlete's in a race situation, feeling good, pushing hard for their position, but then gets feedback from their core that they are running, I don't know, hot, are they supposed to stop? Are they supposed to lower their effort and sacrifice their position in their race because of that number? Well, the core website is not completely clear on this, so I can't actually tell you what they advise in this kind of instance, but the gist of what they seem to be presenting is indeed this. Now, to be frank, the core website is actually pretty vague on a lot of things, not the least of which is how best to make use of their product. For example, they suggest that you begin by doing a heat ramp test. This is a test that they themselves admit is kind of experimental and that I couldn't really find any great science to back up. In any case, it involves making yourself hotter and hotter as you exert yourself harder and harder on your bike trainer in order to determine what they call your heat training zone. This is the zone of body temperature where you are apparently optimally efficient. They then provide some ways for you to do heat adaptation, wherein you are doing lower intensity workouts where the goal is to raise the body temperature above your heat training zone and increase cooling efficiency. It's kind of long on methodology without really explaining how it all works or why, it also remains entirely unclear to me why you need this device and can't just do the training without knowing your body temperature. To their credit, though, Core lists a lot of science on their site in an attempt to back up their protocols and their methodology. But when we went over those references, not a single one had anything to do with the utilization of this device. Most of them did talk about the importance of maintaining cooling and the impact of heat on performance. And these are things that I have spoken about a few times before, but let's just do a brief rundown again. The main issue when exercising in the heat is that it stresses the systems involved in thermoregulation. Essentially, as the muscles heat up, our cooling pump, the cooling fluid, and the radiator all need to go into overdrive in order to make the generated heat in order to take that generated heat away and shed it off into the surrounding environment. Well, the heat pump is our heart. The coolant is our blood and plasma that's flowing within our blood vessels. And the radiator is the skin, whose effects are enhanced by the production of sweat. Now, this system is further stressed when the environment itself is hotter and more humid because in those conditions, heat transfer to the air is less efficient. And as a result, thermoregulation is impaired and the strain becomes even greater. As the balance tips towards increasing thermoregulation... The heart, in other words, as the body becomes hotter or the environment becomes hotter, the heart is no longer able to provide adequate blood flow and oxygen to the working muscles, so they begin to operate less efficiently. Furthermore, the intestines are also deprived of that same blood flow, and so the absorption of fluids and nutrients is interrupted, and you can understand why in the heat, stomach problems then, and dehydration can become worse very quickly. Now, there are several well-known strategies for acclimating to performing in the heat, and these are covered in many of the references on the core site as well. Most heat acclimation protocols involve doing more and more work at increasing intensity in hotter environments over time. And during this period, the body makes several adaptations, all of which allow for decreased heat production and improved heat shedding and fluid retention. Now, heat acclimation has also been shown to be possible by incorporating sauna sessions in the weeks leading up to an event in a warm climate and exercising indoors with extra clothing and without fans in an attempt to reproduce similar environmental conditions. Now, you'll notice that in none of these heat acclimation protocols did I say anything about monitoring body temperature. And that is very much on purpose, because in none of the published studies on this subject to date has any researcher really spent any time actually doing that, monitoring athletes' body temperature. Instead, the emphasis has always been on the temperature of the environment and the environmental conditions and how the athlete performed within those conditions. So, what then is the core needed for, and why do its makers insist that this device is an important tool for heat acclimation, when there is no science whatsoever that suggests that it's really needed? Well, I'd love to be able to answer this, and in the coming weeks, I hope to be able to. While I was preparing this segment, I reached out to the folks who make the core, and they did get back to me, but unfortunately the person that I need to speak to is away on vacation. So, for now, This is going to be a bit of an incomplete assessment. What I can definitively say about the core for now is this. Training and racing in the heat is a very difficult undertaking, and there's no question that while our bodies can adapt to some extent, we can still expect to see decrements in performance as the temperature and humidity rise. The heat adaptation protocols that exist currently are all built on the notion of encouraging physiologic adaptations to shift our bodies to improve performance at higher temperatures and improve cooling while preserving our overall hydration and sodium status. Now, whether or not the CORE can accentuate any of this and make us even better with heat adaptation is to me at this point unclear, but once I've had a chance to speak to the folks at CORE, I'll get back to you to give you my final assessment. For now, I would say if you have an event coming up in a warm environment, please do take a listen to episode 17, where I discussed all of this in much more detail, and I can tell you that for now at least, keep your money in your pocket, hold off on the core until I have more to report back, hopefully in the coming weeks' times. Do you have a question for me to answer on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me at tri-doc underscore at icloud.com. Alternatively, you can join the private group on Facebook for the TriDoc Podcast. Just answer a couple of really easy questions, questions that should be easy if you're a regular listener to this show. I'll grant you entry into the group, and you can join the conversation there and submit questions for me to consider answering on a show at a later time. I have been in the sport of triathlon for a little bit over two decades. And since starting this uh, podcast, well, just over three years ago now, I have had the great pleasure of speaking with some of the greats in our sport, Who I watched from the time that I got into it and even from before I even had contemplated participating in triathlon as an athlete myself. Uh, In the time that I've been doing this show, you have heard me interview people like Heather Fuhrer, Mark Allen, Dave Scott. Well, today I have the opportunity to speak with yet another of one of those uh, world champions and uh, great athletes that I had the opportunity to watch when I was just getting involved and uh, who had a great impact on me. Karen Smyers competed as a professional triathlete for 30 years and during her long career won seven national and four world championship titles including a dramatic come from behind victory in the Hawaiian Ironman world championships in 1995. Her victory at the short course ITU triathlon world championship just five weeks later still earns her the distinction of being the only woman ever to win triathlons two most prestigious races in the same year. Subsequently, she endured the challenge of a severed hamstring muscle by broken glass, a timeout for the birth of her daughter, a knockdown by an 18-wheeler while cycling in a battle with thyroid cancer, which prompted Sports Illustrated to name her the triathlete most likely to be eaten by a shark. Fortunately, that didn't come to pass, and instead, she came back to win her seventh elite national championship title in August of 2001, just a week shy of her 40th birthday. With all of these successes, Karen was unsurprisingly inducted into the USA Triathlon and the International Triathlon Union's Hall of Fames in both of their inaugural years. In May of 2020, Karen had the honor of serving as the women's coach of Team USA for the inaugural Collins Cup. And currently, she shares her experience, optimism, and passion for racing as a coach, motivational speaker, and race organizer with her newly launched company, Gallivant Racing. She she has spearheaded the all-volunteer-managed Lincoln Kids Triathlon for the past 17 years. She's a 1983 graduate of Princeton University and currently lives in Lincoln, Massachusetts with her daughter, Jenna, son, Casey, and husband and frequent training partner, Michael King. But for now, I've gotten her to slow down just long enough to take some time to chat with me so that all of you can learn a little bit more about her here on the TriDoc Podcast. Karen, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, much. you've had a career of incredible highlights. We mentioned just a few, I wonder, um, when you think back on, uh, all of your successes, all of, uh, you know, maybe less successes, are there any things that kind of stand out above the rest, uh, when you look back on your career?
1: Um, yeah, there's, there's lots stand out, but I have to say, you know, those very beginning years when I first sort of discovered the sport and, uh, It was very small back then. And it was um, just a small group of people that, you know, we knew every uh, triathlete in our community, pretty much, because we all went to the same races. And, you know, if I saw somebody swimming across Walden Pond, then I was like, oh, my God, you must be a triathlete. You know, now there's hundreds and hundreds of people doing it. So Um, but it was really fun in those beginning years because it was kind of uh, the sport was growing and everyone was super excited and um, Dave McGilvery, who was responsible for kind of getting the sport going in our area, put on a series of races. And one of them was this Bay State Triathlon that <clears throat> brought in some of the big names that you know I'd only read about in magazines. And um, I ended up winning that race and passing Allison Rowe on the run, who had won the Boston Marathon. And uh, that was sort of what really kind of launched um my trajectory because I realized like I could be good at this. And it was just so exciting to, I'd I'd had sport involved in my life, you know, since I was five years old. And after I'd gotten out of college, I was a little bit, uh, you know, wondering like, what do I do with my life? I don't have an organized sport to be a part of. And so finding triathlon was just this, you know, perfect um, place for me to put my energies and to feel like, Ah, life does go on after college. (laughs) And and
0: what was your background sports-wise?
1: So, I mean, I did, I just did everything when I was a kid, but I ended up becoming more of a swimmer was sort of my focus. Um, But I did, you know, I started a field hockey team in junior high. I I started a softball team in elementary school and like wrote to other schools and um, asked if they wanted to get fifth graders and sixth graders together to play against our team. So I, I just always loved sports. I did gymnastics. I played tennis. Um, and, uh, but then in college focused on the swimming, but spring came around when, um, swimming ended and I was, you know, just like, what do I do with myself? And so my college roommate was a runner and she's like, oh, you gotta walk onto the track team. I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I picked up running in college and, um, and really realized that I I liked running and had some, you know, a little bit of talent there. So when I got out of college, I joined a running club with her. She moved to, we both moved to the Boston area. And, um, so that kind of got me, you know, into the endurance sports, um, um,
0: you know, group, I guess here in Boston. So. Now I didn't hear cycling in there. So when, when did you pick up cycling? Yeah,
1: cycling took a while. So, um, In the beginning, I didn't have a car, and um, when I finally managed to get a job, I was biking to and from my job. That that was pretty much my cycling training in the beginning, and yeah, it wasn't enough. Uh, You know, back then in the eighties, there weren't coaches, there wasn't an internet to like learn about how to train. So, both swimming and running, I'd had some coaching in college and high school. So. I had, um, an idea of what to do. And I also had joined clubs. So, um, but biking, I was trying to figure it out on my own and was not doing a very good job of it. But I I think a lot of it also was that I did have a full-time job those first, um, five, six years in the sport. And it was hard to fit cycling in, especially during the week. So I biked four miles to and from my job. And then on the weekend I would try and, you know, bike for an hour or two and and I would be like, wow, that was hard. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it it took a while. Um, I also was like not a technophobe, but I just um the the equipment I just didn't embrace the idea that you know having race wheels and a really fast bike and <clears throat> being arrow was like um all that important. For me, I was like, well, geez, you've got to train more. Like, what's you know, you're never gonna be a good biker until you train more. And so I raced on regular training wheels until and on a, you know, a bike, I think I won with my paper route money <laughs> a, or that I bought with paper route money until, um, I think, uh, right before the world championships in 89, I, um, finally Dave McGillvery actually helped me get some sponsorship and, um, I got like a nice Trek bike and I got some, uh, a disc wheel. And I just had this huge breakthrough in my biking. So I think it was a combination of, Figuring out finally how to train. Oh, my company went on halftime too. That was the other big change is um, once the the company ended up like on the summer, you know, we ended up having half days. So all of a sudden I had this time to bike and I, and I decided at that point, if you're ever going to be a really good triathlete, you've got to learn to bike better. I used to get passed by everybody on the bike. And, um, so I, uh, I just made a pact with myself that biking was going to be my first priority and it was a real change because I used to love swimming and running because I was good at it, you know, or at least better. Um, and, but making myself bike first and make that sort of the
0: priority really did help and then getting the equipment to,
1: yeah. That's
0: really cool. fascinating to hear you say that. Cause I, I, I'd be willing to wager a lot of money that as a coach, you probably help your athletes identify their weaknesses and work on those weaknesses. And yet as an athlete, it took you a long time to kind of embrace that.
1: Yeah. Well, it was also just a little, a little bit matter of opportunity that it was just hard. You know, if you're working full time, you don't have, you know, to do a, a good, like I didn't have any base, you know, so I really needed to just learn how to go out for an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours. And at the time I would do a little comp trainer session. Well, I didn't have compra trainer back then, but I'd do an indoor trainer session that would be you know, 45 minutes long before I went off to work or something. So, um, yeah, it, yeah, but that is something that I do try to impart yeah. to my, uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: clients um, these days. As, as a, as a short course athlete, you made the transition to Ironman pretty seamlessly. And I'm just curious, that's that's generally not the way it works, except for people like Christian Blumenfeld, who seem to be able to succeed at whatever distance. Uh, most athletes tend to focus either on the short or the long, and yet you had great success at both. Was there a big kind of mind shift, you know, that you had to go through to make that decision? Like, you know, okay, I'm going to, like, what made you think, okay, I'm going to try this Kona thing and, and then actually be able to have success there?
1: Yeah. So two things happened. Um, one was, you know, I had some success at the short distance, and I I really loved the Olympic distance in terms of being able to race often um because I love to race. And um, so you know, two or three times a month I could I could join in an Olympic distance race. If you go to Europe and you just like line three of them or in a row up, and it was a great way to travel and see the world and um, but um, I realized that the Ironman was the thing that really was capturing kind of the attention of sponsors and had the big prize money and um, the magazines would just be filled with, you know, stuff about Ironman athletes. So I realized like, oh, I might have to uh, explore this distance if I really want to sort of break it to the top, you know, uh, echelon of triathletes that, you know, are known for being the best of the world. And um but I still just the idea of the distance scared the hell out of me. I just didn't think I had the mindset for it. Um, But I went over and watched the um, Ironman in Hawaii after the worlds were held in, uh, I think it was Australia or New Zealand. My husband was with me and, we watched Hawaii and I watched Paula and Aaron race each other. And at the time I used to think, oh God, Iron Man, who would want to do that anyway? It's just a suffer fest. It's just people, you know, enduring this awful pain and slogging, you know, through this hot place. And, And I watched how they actually were racing, like running a fast marathon after all that. And I was like, wow, this isn't a slog fest. This is a race. Like, and I, I actually liked that aspect of it. I, it became not just like this, you know, Oh, who can put up with the most, you know, endurance, I don't know, pain or something to, wow, this is strategic. This is like you can teach yourself to actually be able to run fast. And um, so that was kind of cool. So it started, you know, that's when I finally said, Oh God, I think I'm going to have to do this race one day. And, um, But then uh, the thing that really tilted me is my husband. So that same Bay State Triathlon, um, this is the race that I had um, kind of finally raced the big people and won. That eventually became an Ironman qualifier for amateurs. And my husband and a bunch of people from my club, Team Psycho, all decided that they were going to try and get an Ironman slot at this race in 93. My sister as well, Donna. And so um, I was a pro, so I couldn't qualify there. But a whole bunch of people from my club, including my sister and husband, qualified. And I had told my husband beforehand, I'm like, you're going to try and qualify for Hawaii? Really? Like, oh, my God. All right. If you qualify, then I'll do it, too, thinking there's no way he would qualify. And then he did. And so I was like, oh, my God, I'm not going to Hawaii to watch you. I'm not going to do it. So I had to quickly find a a qualifier. And uh, back then it was... not as hard for pros to qualify. It was just a matter of, um, actually I think we asked Dave McGilvery. uh, Mike pig was also, um, uh, Dave McGilvery was our, my, uh, agent. And we told, I told him I was interested in qualifying and he actually just talked to the Chicago race director and said, Hey, you know, Mike pig and Karen want to qualify for Hawaii. Anyway, you can put up a couple slots at that race. There's Olympic distance. He's like, Oh yeah, let me talk to, you know, I think it was, um, Uh, who was the race director back then? David Yates, maybe. And he's like, oh, Karen and Mike want to come to Hawaii? Sure, we'll put up some slots for them. And so we just went to Chicago, got our slots, and we were into Hawaii. (laughs) It was pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. Okay, first of all, I want to point out that uh, for a lot of the amateur age groupers, it is a slog fest (laughs) (laughs) I know you know that. Well, I've actually uh, had many
1: races where it was a slog fest too. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And uh, of course, it has... uh, Uh, As it was pointed out to me very recently when I was uh, talking about my first Kona uh, slot that I got back in 2018. I was saying how I felt a bit like an imposter because, uh, my slot was a roll down and I felt like I didn't really deserve it. And he, uh, pointed out to me, he said, Hey, in the old days, you used to get these at Olympic distance races. So, yeah. uh, you definitely earned your slot. And I, I, I definitely feel like, uh, yes, it is so true. They are very hard to come by right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to talk about 1995. Uh, th- you, you had of course been there uh, a couple of times before and had success. Uh, But 1995 was the big one for you. Uh, um, And for my listeners who uh, I'm guessing are probably not familiar with that day, uh, Paul Newby-Fraser really was the queen of Kona. She had won... Several times, I think, before that. Uh
1: seven, I think.
0: Before that? I I know she yeah. won seven total, but uh I don't know. No, I, eight anyway. total,
1: but seven going into that race.
0: Okay. So she she's obviously had a lot of success and because she uh, said she was
1: retiring after that race.
0: Got it. So 95 was a, was a very tough day, very windy. And, uh, Karen for the first time came out of the water, right with Paula. And then Paula laid down the hammer on the bike on a very challenging day and put in a big, big lead, uh, coming off the bike. And then Karen, uh, had the second fastest marathon to that point and actually passed Paula who collapsed, uh, from exhaustion in the last half mile. And, uh, Karen ended up winning that race. And I'm just curious you know, you, you get off the bike after feeling like you had a really good bike. And I, I think a lot of us, uh, as age groupers have this happen. Uh, we feel like we're doing well, but we might be getting, you know, feedback from people on course that, Oh God, you know, there's some guy or some woman who's just way ahead. Uh, and how do you start the run? Like, like, how do you go out there and give it your best knowing that for all intensive purposes, it, the race is essentially over.
1: Yeah. Well, um, to be honest, I was not happy with my bike ride. So, you know, had, i had finished, um, my first Ironman there, i had finished fourth and, you know, that was just sort of, I was exploring the distance. I didn't really expect anything. So I was quite happy with fourth and it gave me a little idea of what I needed to do to get better. Um, the next year I went, I got second to Paula and, um, you know, I've raced Paula many times over the years and, um, I could beat her generally at the Olympic distance and and I could outbike her at the Olympic distance. So I was like, huh, how is she riding so well in Hawaii? You know, it just must be like she knows how to pace herself, how to push herself. And I I kind of believe that I ought to be able to keep up to her. And um, so going into that third year, I was like, you know, I'm gonna stick with Paula. She knows what she's doing. I think I'm capable of it, you know, um t- skill-wise or talent-wise. And so when I came out of the water, I'm like, perfect. I can keep an eye on her. I'm going to do what she does. And when she started to pull away from me, mile like 25 or 30, when we really hit the winds, I think, you know, a lot of it was, she had, she was super aerodynamic. She also, yeah, she knew how to just push herself over the distance. But as she started to pull away, I was just beating myself up. I was so mad that I wasn't executing, you know, what I had planned to. And it, you know, the knife gets twisted because, I could in the beginning see her, you know, 30 seconds ahead and, you know, um, people along the side would be like, Karen, she's just 30 seconds up the road. And I'm like, I know I can see her. You know, I was with her (laughs) five minutes ago (laughs) and then I'd be later, Karen, she's only two minutes ahead. I'm like, ah, she was 30 seconds, like five miles ago, what's going on. And so every time I got a split, I was like, just so mad at myself for not being better and, you know, keeping up. And, um, it was spiraling me down into this, like, you know, I was just so negative. And, uh, what finally turned me around was, um, you know, anyway, he was, I was, it's like you were mentioning before about, um, coaching athletes, um, how it's you know, do as I say, not as I do, because I was doing all the things you're not supposed to do. I was basing my race totally around somebody else that I can't control. Um, you know, I was focusing on all negative things and, um, just it, my race was going downhill quickly, even though I was still in second place, you know, but that of course didn't even occur to me that, you know, maybe you're doing okay relative to everybody else. And Paul was just having an amazing day. But what finally happened is I was coming out of, um, Kauai high, there's a, you know, you climb up the, that little hill after the long descent from Havi and it's, it's very hot right there sometimes. And it kind of like, you know, reinforces how much further you have to go. And as I was climbing up this hill, I'm getting another split from people because a lot of people watch there finding out I was like seven minutes or eight minutes behind. And, um, Dave Scott gave me a split. And I remember like standing up on my pedals and like scowling and being like, I'm not taking this line down, Dave. I'm so mad at how far behind I am, you know, and he saw my body language and like immediately he's like, Karen, you're doing fine. You got to do your own race. And it was just one of those comments, you know, didn't uh, it probably help that it was coming from, you know, this guy that I, you know, held on a pedestal. Um, but he's also he's so insightful, you know, and right away I was like, oh, my God, he is so right. Like, I am just making myself so much worse by focusing on this. And so. I just made a pack right then. I'm like, he's right. I've got to just finish this bike ride to the best of my ability and then just have the run of my life and let everything, you know, be as it does it may. And uh so the rest of the bike, I finally like let up on myself and was able to just focus on my nutrition and you know, just doing the bike as best I can. But I also had in the back of my head, you're gonna just have your best run possible. And so when I got off the bike, I got another split of 12 minutes and I was like you know what? I outran her by four minutes in the first eight miles last year. If you do that three times in a row, you catch her at mile 20, um, at whatever, 24. (laughs) And so, um, I just had that in my head and, um, I just said, do the best you can. That's good motivation, you know, and first eight miles, I did make up four minutes. And I'm like, all right, you're on track, keep it going, you know? So that I just kind of used her as a carrot the rest of the, of of the run. And, you know, you get positive feedback like that. Now that the splits were actually working in my favor, people were telling me I'm catching her, you know? So, um, that's how it unfolded.
0: <laughs> that's, that's, so basically we all need Dave Scott out there. It's right? just oh, giving yeah, us that yeah. feedback, right? Yeah, yeah. It's that funny. Is, that's I, a great I have another, story, I'm though.
1: just going to throw this story out quickly because, um, I, I tell these stories a couple of times because they're they're so important in terms of your mental aspect of races. And that comment from Dave Scott was one. And there was another one in the world championships in 1990 from, it came from Scott Molina. So he's my other like guru that in the middle of the run in Orlando, Florida, I was in, um, uh, third place. Um, no, I was in fourth place. That's right. I was in fourth place and I was bummed out because I wasn't going to be on the podium. And, uh, three miles into the run and I was like negative, negative, negative thinking, God, it's so hot out here. It was like noon in Orlando and a golf course. And I was just feeling so sorry for myself that I had to run in the heat. And, uh, and that, you know, it was just so stupid of these organizers to put it on at this time and all this stuff. And Scott uh, Molina cheered for me and I must've given him a scowl. Like, do you know how hot it is out here? And he's like, Karen, you gotta want it and it was another one of those comments that just cut through my, you know, negativity and um, you know, feeling sorry for myself and i was like, oh my god, he's right. Like i can see second and third, they're 20 seconds ahead of me and all i can think of is i'm hot, you know, and i all of a sudden got me like kind of psyched up and i started reeling in joy hansen and carol montgomery and Aaron Baker had been out front and we managed to catch her because she had just done an Ironman the week or two before. And, um, and I ended up winning my first world championship. And so I, I credit Scott Molina and Dave Scott for my biggest wins.
0: <laughs> That's great. Those are good stories. Uh, just back to Kona for a second. When, I mean, it sounds like you believed you had a chance right when you started the run, but let's face it. 12 minutes is a big gap. When did you really believe, oh my gosh, I, I've got this
1: not until not until i was crossing the line to be honest almost i mean it was the the final stretch down a drive uh you know even when i passed her so you know i've been chasing this you know figment um the entire run i never got was able to see her except for when we passed each other i guess in um uh the energy lab but you know everything was split so it was just this sort of like imaginary thing i was chasing and um the coolest moment was when I was running down um uh what's the gosh, after the left hand turn at the hot corner. Um I'm spacing on the name, uh the highway there. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, I know
1: what before you turn down a Hualalai yeah. um is when I first got sight of her. So I'd been getting these splits. Even at the top of the polani Hill, um, I remember vividly that I got a split. I was a minute 40 behind. And I'm like, all right, she could hear the finish line from here. I'm not going to catch her, but it's cool that I've gotten this close. And, you know, just keep trying to get closer because it makes it an exciting race. And so even then, I didn't believe, but I thought, you know, let's make it as exciting as you can. And um, so when I actually did see her, Oku Kini Highway, as I did see her finally there, it was right before she turned to go down Huala Lai, And the hair of my arms just stood on end. And I was like, holy cow, she's right there. Oh my God, this is the coolest thing ever. And so even then I was like, I don't know if I can catch her. You know, she knows the finish line is right there. And um, so, but I thought I can get close and I can see her. We're going to be on a lead drive together. How cool is that? You know? So anyway, I came around the corner and I was just like, my eyes like saucers, like, where is she? Where is she? And I flew down that hill. Well, I felt like I was flying. I look at the video and it looks like I'm jogging, but I swear I was sprinting. <laughs> but um, she really was faltering. And that's where I actually passed her much further, quicker than I expected because she was sort of you know, stumbling. And right before I got to her, she put her hands on her knees and stopped. And so I almost ran into her and I kind of like patted her on the back as I ran around her. And I really didn't have time to assess what was going on. I thought she might have just cramped. I thought, you know, I didn't know what was going on. So I just, you know, made a beeline for Alihi Drive, took the turn. But the whole time I was looking back, like, was she cramping? Is she going to come back? Like, you know, is this going to be a sprint to the finish? And, the whole time, I was just not sure of what was going on until I could finally see the finish line. And I looked back and there was still no sight of her. And that's when I finally was like, oh, my God, I'm going to win this thing. I mean, I didn't have time to figure out how I was going to finish. And you know, I, I finished. And I, I definitely didn't have a finishing line celebration because I think I was still in shock. Um, and not to, and they were also mentioning, and here comes Paula Newby-Fraser to win her eighth title. And, uh, they, they knew she had been leading the whole way. They didn't get the word that I had passed her. And so they were just, they couldn't really see that it wasn't Paula until I got closer. And then they're finally like, wait, oh, my God, wait, that's not Paula. (laughs) So it was pretty funny. Um, so yeah, the whole thing was a little bit like discombobulated, you know, not not the finish that you kind of imagine if you're picturing winning the Hawaiian Ironman. So um, yeah, I finished. And then I, you know, immediately turned around, like, where is she? She should be coming any second. I'll congratulate her. And then she doesn't appear. And I'm like, what just happened? What's going on? And everybody else is confused too. Like, where's Paula? And um, then they um, finally, I Paul Huddle gets word that she's collapsed and he's at the finish and he goes running down there and, um, i mostly saw all this on the tv coverage later you know at the time i didn't know what was going on so um anyway 20 minutes down.
0: later she walked across right?
1: yes exactly and still in you know almost third place um fernanda keller sprinted by her right at the very end to get third so paula got fourth after laying down for 20 minutes yeah wow so yeah and that was that was super inspiring actually to see her get up and and get to the finish line
0: and well, speaking you know, of- I
1: can't tell this story without mentioning that you know she was supposed to retire and of course she being the champion she is is like that's not the way I want to go out and so she came back the next year and kicked my butt soundly so <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um I uh, give her uh full credit for she just had one bad day and I was there to
0: capitalize. (laughs) sometimes that's what it takes, right? Uh, Speaking of getting up when you're down, uh, I want to shift gears just to finish the interview and talk a little bit about some of the challenges you faced recently. I know that uh, in the last several years, you have faced some health challenges. And I think they're very relevant to us as age groupers. I know uh, there's a lot of talk I have talked, I've dedicated a lot of time on this podcast talking about uh, health health issues related to older triathletes. I, I use that word cautiously. I, I know we're, we're both chronologically older, but still very useful. Um, tell My us a little bit about what on
1: is old is definitely changed. <laughs> yeah.
0: Tell us a little bit about some of the health challenges you faced in the last few years, uh, specifically related to your heart.
1: Yeah. So, Um, when I was, uh, I was just turning 50, still racing professionally, you know, I was definitely on a little bit, the downside of my, um, you know, I I wasn't in my peak condition anymore, but I I was still able to race and get a little prize money and having fun with it. You know, I enjoyed being able to travel around to races still. So, um, I was hanging on to my pro card with my, um, arthritic hands. (laughs) And, uh, I did this race in Memphis in May, May race where I was having trouble catching my breath on the swim and then really feeling not right on the bike, just no power to the pedals and something started to collect in my chest. And when I started to run, I had to cough it up and I discovered it was like bloody kind of phlegm. And I was like, why am I getting blood in my lungs? Like, that's weird. And I, it really interfered with my ability to run, but I could walk, you know, I wasn't like about to collapse or anything. As long as I kind of slowed down when I was coughing, I was okay. So I finished the 10 K, but I went directly to the medical tent and I'm like, I'm coughing up some weird stuff out of my lungs. Like what's going on. And they're like, well, you probably are having, um, a, you know, some sort of asthma. There's a lot of pollen in the air. And, um, So, but they're like, go see your pulmonologist when you get home. So I went home and it started 10 years of trying to find out what's going on. And I ended up several times a year, I would cough up blood during my races. And I stopped finishing, to be honest, I'd never dropped out of races before, except for one time when I broke my collarbone. But, you know, in, um, 30 years of racing, I, um, just did not like to DNF and, uh, But once that started happening, so to your point about listening to your body, you know, once I realized, okay, something's not right here um, and I could sometimes go through a race and I'd be okay In the beginning, it was really up and down, which was so confusing to me that I'd I'd have, you know, a month of just having trouble breathing, feeling like I was at altitude all the time. Um, and all the testing I would go, you know, the first, the pulmonologist did a bunch of lung CT scans, allergists. Um, they're like, we think it's your heart. If you're getting blood in your lungs, it's often stems from the heart. So I started seeing cardiologists doing exercise tests and bottom line is they just could not figure it out. And, um, I would go through phases of like, Oh God, I don't, you know, it's a mystery. You know, maybe it's in my head, you know, I knew it wasn't in my head, but, um, I just, uh, you know, stopped racing quite as much. Cause it wasn't any fun when you can't breathe during your race. Um, and finally over the pandemic, I just, I don't know what it was. I was just like, I've got to get to the bottom of this. I'm so sick of not knowing what is wrong. And cause I also, I was seeing this Dr. Bagish finally, who is this very famous, um, you know, um, expert in athletes and heart conditions. And, uh, even he couldn't figure it out. And um, that he had a a young intern or a guy that was, you know, working um, under him that was training to become a full-fledged cardiologist. And he kind of took an interest and was curious and um, had some ideas. And I finally like, will you help me figure this out? Like, let's try every test in the book. And he finally just started doing everything uncovering. And it finally took an MRI of the heart and also doing an exercise test while they looked at my um, heart to find out that, um, you know, I think the left ventricle thickening, which is what I ended up with HCM hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. But even after they found that they're like, we don't think this was here five years ago. Like you've changed over the course of the decade that we've been following you. Um, and maybe I was having the LVOT left ventricle outflow tract, um, obstruction um, before the thickening was actually showing up, and that's what was causing me such trouble in races. Um, but yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, it was, it's been a it was a long decade of you know not knowing and frustration at you know wondering what is wrong with me and why can no one find it out, um, and wondering why is there nobody else in the world that has what I have? Like I have yet to find. I looked into the site, you know, the swim induced pulmonary edema, because that was coming up a lot when I would Google, you know, blood in the lungs during competition, you know, um, but it wasn't the same, you know, I could tell it was similar, but not really quite didn't follow my um, symptoms. Um, so yeah, it was agonizing, like just not knowing that's the hardest part. And Once I finally was diagnosed, the problem is, there's not really a cure. So it's a genetic heart problem that sometimes has a late onset. You know more about it probably than I do (laughs) as a physician. Um, But um, there's possibly some treatment down the road for my obstruction. You know, I could do surgery. The thing is, is my symptoms are all exercise induced. Like I feel fine when I'm not exercising. So I'm not sure that I want to, you know, undergo the risks just so I can continue the glory of my racing days. (laughs) Um, But I mean, you know, it's to be honest, because I had 10 years of fighting through it, continuing to just, you know, I think after five years, Dr. Baggish said, Karen, I'm I'm 99% sure it's not your heart and that made me actually relieve some of my symptoms because i think anxiety was playing into it too if i would start to have trouble breathing on a run i would start to imagine am i going to have a heart attack like am i going to be one of those statistics of those you know people that drop dead during their marathon and they're like oh she was so fit who knows you know and so i would start looking for the ambulance on the race course like will they be able to save me if i fall over right now and i thought this is no way to race but Um, him telling me that did seem to help a little bit. Um, but, um, anyway, the whole point is, I guess, 10 years ago, they might've said you shouldn't be doing anything like no exercise whatsoever, but given that I've been doing 10 years of kind of, you know, just adjusting my effort level when I have to, they're like, well, you're probably not going to kill yourself by continuing to do this. Um, but I have, you know, now that I know what's going on if I start to have symptoms on a run, I just walk, you know, I don't run with people anymore because I don't want to be kind of um, sucked into pushing myself beyond what I feel like is safe. Um, I watch my heart rate. I have an Apple watch so I can do EKGs once in a while. I've been monitored for arrhythmias. I don't tend to get arrhythmias, which is the thing that generally will make you, you know, have the, um, the thing that might, you know, actually stop your heart. So for me right now, it's, I still do races once in a while, but it's with the, uh, you know, caveat that I'm, I'm participating. I'm not racing and it's hard dignity wise. Like I just did a sprint race this past weekend and I did the five K in like 35 minutes because I had to walk so much. And, you know, I figure, oh, well, that's, you know, 350 people that got to beat a world champion. They're, they're happy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I, 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 the fact that you could still take enjoyment out of participating, I think is, uh, uh, a testament to who you are. And, uh, look, I mean, we all face a decline at some point. And uh, if a health condition causes that decline to be quicker, so be it. But uh, it doesn't mean you have to just recede into a little hole and not participate anymore. And I mean, to be able to find the value in still participating, I think, is uh, uh, is very important. And I just want to point out that um, uh, actually, I'm going to be talking about this subject uh, in a future episode, a medical segment, talking about the uh, value or lack thereof of doing genetic testing for these kinds of cardiologists cardiac conditions. Um, it is something that, uh, is talked about. Uh, so you'll be hearing more about this, but, uh, Hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy uh, is usually an affliction of the young and is the cause of sudden cardiac death in young people. I think that's probably uh, a little bit why it took so long for Karen's diagnosis to be made, because uh, as she said, it can be seen later in life, but it's much more common in young people, and it probably wasn't on the radar. Uh, I'm glad to get, that like, you get
1: screened right away. You know that was yeah. more important than anything
0: was to make exactly. sure that
1: yeah. And yeah they, and i'm so glad
0: help. you listened to your body and actually uh followed through uh i, I think it's hilarious though uh, like so many other pros who have the reserve and the capacity to push through Uh, you know, a medical condition, you know, you still finish that first race, even though you were in pulmonary edema, (laughs) something's wrong, but I'm going to finish and then I'll deal with it, (laughs) which is classic because that's Tim O'Donnell also, right. It's a, it is race with a a myocardial infarction because you're a pro you're in supreme shape. I mean, what could this possibly be? Mm -hmm. Uh, well, Karen, I'm so glad that, uh, you, uh, have sorted that out, that you're still able to enjoy, uh, racing and uh, doing all the things that you're doing and, more than that, that you took some time to speak with me today on this podcast because I really enjoyed the conversation. Karen Smyers, uh, world champion at uh, the Ironman distance and at the Olympic distance uh, so many times. Thank you so much for taking some time to speak with me on the TriDoc podcast today. I really, really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I want to broadcast
0: in And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh,
1: how you doing? <laughs> no relation. I'm, uh...
0: I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the Tri-Doc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TridocPodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri-doc at icloud.com or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook. And you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit TriDocCoaching.com or LifesportCoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridark Podcast Facebook page, Tridark Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at reverbnation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The Tri Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.